expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. It is the 113th edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, and Nick, I literally didn't have any time to think of a joke because we're really just too busy. We are very, very busy. Of course, we have Taiwan Comic Con, which of course is tomorrow, and then we also have, of course, Awesome Con. Yeah, and you can find out more information. If you're listening to this on Friday and you're going to be going to Tidewater Comic Con this weekend, you get all the information on guests and stuff at TidewaterComicCon.com. So you can go there and find out all the information there. Of course, Awesome-Con.com for information on Awesome Con, which is June 3rd through the 5th at the Walter Washington Convention Center in Washington, D.C. A lot of big guests going to be there. We've just got a ton of stuff lined up for you guys. And hey, if you're going to be an awesome con, we'll be wearing our Down and Nerdy podcast shirts. You can catch us there. Or if it's Tidewater Con, look at the logo. You'll see it. You'll know it's us. Come up and say hi. We'd love to chat with you. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's just going to be a lot of fun. You know, of course, we finally got the hotel booked. We're good. Uh, that You know, now it's just the, the four-hour trip to D.C., which isn't going to be bad because of the time we're going to be leaving. But... D.C. traffic can happen at any time, man. Yeah. Last time I went to D.C., my wife and I were in the hotel room. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and there was a traffic jam on, on M Street right outside our hotel room. I'm like, are you <laughs> kidding me? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Where are you people going? Right. Exactly, man. And, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, going to Awesome Con, be a lot of great people there. Adam West, Burt Ward, Brett Dalton, of course, Maidens of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's a lot more people we're going to be hopefully talking to. And uh, it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun, man. But speaking of fun, last week, of course, we talked to Chloe Bennett. And, you know, man, she wasn't lying about that, that ending and how things it's going to change S.H.I.E.L.D. And we'll get more into that later on. But it was so fun. To talk to her as, uh, you know, to, talk, to bring up the and pump up the season finale. I'm still excited about talking to her, and she was a great guest, but I'm still depressed over what happened at the finale. Yeah. I'm sad. I'm actually <laughs> sad. Basically. Yeah. But, I mean, hey, they're moving to Wednesday. They're moving to 10 o'clock next season, so yep. it's going to be a little darker, a little grittier. She wasn't lying. They're going darker, so I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what they. And you, of course, hear our review coming up on this week in Geek Tame as well. Exactly. And come next is what we're reading. We got two new comics. To find out what we're reviewing this week. Coming up next in the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of Shield, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, boys and girls. We get our long boxes. We discuss what we're reading, and of course. This segment is always brought to you by the fine folks at Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards on Aragona Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and all the great things he has for your nerd self and the nerds that you love. And James, since you went through the painful gauntlet first of Grumpy Cat last week, I figure it's only right that I go first this week. And right, I'll just relax and pet my dog. While <laughs> so I decided, you know, I love comics that take place like 1930s 1940s and 50s i just love that that era and that noirish feel that mm-hmm. these certain and that era has about it so of course i went the dark horse route this week and i decided to review lobster johnson number one of three it's a new miniseries called metal monsters of midtown and of course it's from dark horse and stories done by mike mignola and john arcudi the art is by tonsi zonjic and the colors are done by Dave Stewart. Now, I mentioned that this takes place 
in the 1930s. It actually takes place around 1936, actually, Manhattan, I should say, May of 1936. And I'll say this. You want a comic that starts off with a giant robot invasion? Lobster Johnson, number one, is that comic. Nice. Now, I will say this. There is some of the dialogue in the early on pages that kind of threw me a little bit. That kind of made you feel like, okay, this it feels like was there like a, a run before this? Even though this is number one of three, like you felt a little bit confused. There was a one shot not too right. long ago that I reviewed on our website, so that maybe tied into that a little bit. Right. So, but as the I'll say this: what the positive thing about the writing in this is that as you go along and as you read more, it's real easy to connect dots and you don't feel lost at all. And I just got to say this, the, the robots that you see, there's two robots that are, of course, t- attacking the city pretty much. Now, I don't, you don't know what the reason is or who's behind it or what, but it's, 19, remember, it's 1936. They really look like old school microphones. Nice, they, I they, like that. Like, they really do. They look like old school microphones with claw arms pretty much, and that's it. Uh, the art style, I'll say this, really does fit the time frame really, really well. Uh, people are drawn really, really well. The only problem I had with the art was the faraway shots of Lobster Johnson didn't really look all that impressive, but when you had him like a medium shot to a close-up, it was really, really impressive. It was really, really great. Uh, I will say this. The action scenes of the robots, like crashing through buildings and such, very detailed and very, very awesome. There's a scene, of course, where one of the robots is pretty much crashing through the Watts Savings Bank, and it just looks phenomenal. Like, it is amazing. Wow. And this book, from start to finish, is just nonstop action, nonstop, and, you know, mystery as to who is behind this. Why is robots doing what they're doing? You know, they break into a bank, but they don't rob it, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I will say this. There's a way that Lobster Johnson has an idea to defeat them, and it's just one of those things where you're like, okay, that's not where I've left field, but it's like when you have to – I'll just say this without spoiling anything. When you have to lure these things because what you're planning can pretty much take out a whole city block and just destroy buildings, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty big. All right, yeah, that, that might be a good way to go. But, I mean, there's also a female character in this as well. We don't know much about her. From what the way that she's drawn, she looks very upscale and everything else. And I will say this: the way that the that this comic is written, it does have a really nice. And this is really a true testament to the era that it's written in. It's just a great simplicity about it. Mm-hmm. Like when you see Lobster Johnson, like going after the robots and everything else, he's not using these big, you know, extravagant tech, techy things. He's using like two things, pretty much, which is like a lasso rope. And a rocket launcher, that's pretty much it. Which, I mean, it's pretty awesome. I mean, of all the characters that are spun off from the main Hellboy series, yeah. I think that Lobster Johnson is not only the most interesting, but I think the best one out of all of them. Not just because of the era, but there's just so much intrigue that goes on with the character. And I agree with you, the simplicity that's involved, I just love it. And what's great about Lobster Johnson, too, is they don't give you who he really is. Right. Because his entire crew calls him boss. And then the people, the citizens of Manhattan, call him the lobster. Yep. So, again, there's that great mystery, that great noir feeling. And it's just, it really, really is something that really 
is just great. Even his suit, you know, it's 1936. It's just the, from the orange goggles to the, the looks like the aviator helmet and everything mm-hmm. else. It just feels so well done, and the era is great. And again, at first, I will say this. You might be taken back a little bit because, again, it starts off like just immediately with a robot attack. I mean, the first thing you pretty much see in this comic is like a robot like grabbing a police car and throwing it and attacking a city. That's a good first page. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I'll say this, too. When you deal with robots, you deal with things that are attacking a city, explosions, of course, play a big part in this. The explosions in this are done so well, and the colors are just really, really effective and reminiscent of that era. They don't feel out of place. You know, everything is kind of has a little bit of a matte look to it, uh, except for the robots, which are just a little bit shiny. But again, this is a, a series, I think, you know, it's a three-parter. You're going to love it, and I'm already hooked on it, and this is a really another home run for Dark Horse. This is a definite pull for me. I mean, I think they've definitely done well with the Lobster Johnson stuff in the past, so I can't wait to actually read it myself. But I decided to turn back the clock a little bit too, Nick. It's something that we've been looking forward to for a while now is the relaunch of Hanna-Barbera comics. Oh, yeah. DC. So, yeah, you know when Future Quest number one came out, I had to get my hands on it. So that's what I'm going to do this week. Future Quest number one, written by Jeff Parker. Evan Doc Shanner did some of the art. The other dart was done by Steve the Dude Rude. Jordy Belair did the colors. And ALW Studios' Dave Lanfear did the letters. Now, I will say that you see a lot of the classic Hanna-Barbera characters on the cover. You see, like, Space Ghost. And you see Birdman and stuff like that. Not everybody in the cover is in this issue. Not okay. this issue, anyway. I will tell you that right now. There are a few... That are, but not everybody. Actually, the story really centers around, at least in the beginning anyway, or in the meat of the story, it centers around Johnny Quest. Mm-hmm. So you see Johnny Quest, and, you know, Race is there, and we get Johnny Quest's dad, and they're all there, and they're searching for something. I don't want to give away what it is, because, and this isn't really a spoiler if you know the history of Hanna-Barbera, Dr. Zinn is after the same exact thing that they're after. So of it's course. like a race against who's going to find it first. But uh, let's just say that um, there's other people that are looking for Johnny Quest's dad that kind of become a factor in this issue. And it is a character that is on the cover of this book. But I don't want to spoil the reveal because I can tell you that more than one time when I was reading this book, there was just a panel. And they did this so well in the way they designed this book where every time you saw a reveal of a character that you love, it was big. It was bold. It was in your face like yeah, this person's in the book. And you're like, oh, my God, I just saw this person. Yeah, I think a big part of that reason, too, is because, as you said in the intro, pretty much, that this, you know, Hanna-Barbera is coming back into comics. So everybody kind of, in a sense, needs that big intro, in a sense, to get you back and and grab you. And I love Mm -hmm. that they did that in this. And, you know, again, you mentioned, and one thing I want to mention, too, is something that really stuck out to me, what you said was, not everybody on this comic or on the cover, I should say, is in the comic. And I like that you follow that up with, but the people that they do introduce in here is so big and bold, and it really grabs your attention. Now, not only that, I mean, there are a couple of big reveals in this book, and specifically, like, teases ahead, and where some of these... I'm trying to do this without giving away too much where some of these characters might come into play at some point. Right. They show you why and how that might happen. 
and it ties into the main story itself. So I love the way that they did that. And the art style, exactly what you want from this book. It's not exactly like the cartoons were. It's updated just enough to where it looks a little bit modern. So I love the fact that they did that. But everybody you want to see in this book and everybody that's in this book is done perfectly well. And everybody gets their spotlight. When they jump into the to the story, everybody gets that panel where it's like, boom, I'm here. And I love that. And they explain the story of why they're after this thing, kind of what it is and what it might mean. They explain it so well to where we're not going to have to wait until issue two, three, four to find out, okay, what are they after? You know what they're after, but what you don't know is a, what it's going to do and B who's going to get to it first. Right, right. So what would you give this comic, given from what you said about the art and just the writing in general? I mean, we're both big Hand Barbarian yeah. fans, so this is definitely something that caught our eye. So what would you give this? I did not want to be let down, and I wasn't at all. I am, I am very intrigued by where they're going with this. I like that not everything is set in stone. There might be some conflicts that you wouldn't expect. They actually tease that in this issue as well. Some team-ups that you wouldn't necessarily expect either. This is definitely a pull for me. If this is how they're going to start the Hanna-Barbera universe in comics, it's off to a fantastic start. I can't wait. See, reading this now makes me want to get the others now. Even if I was on the fence about a couple of them, it wants me, It makes me want to go get them now because it's like, okay, if this is how you're going to start, now I'm intrigued. So you're pretty much by saying other ones, you're saying the other Hanna-Barbera comics that are going to Yeah, like the out. Flintstones relaunch that they're going to do, the Scooby-Doo mysteries. Wacky races. Yeah, wacky races. Now I want to see that because it's like, okay, clearly they're going to do this justice. There's even kind of a, a, a death in this book too, or at least it looks like one, of a character from the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons as well. And you're like, really? Already? Kind of thing? But not in a bad way. It's it's very surprising. So they did, I mean, Jeff Parker and everybody involved in this book did a fantastic job. I can't wait to see more. Is it, does it end with uh, Snagglepuss going, Heavens to Murgatroy! <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I think they'll save that for Wacky Races. <laughs> I, probably, but that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. We come next, as we mentioned in the beginning of the show... The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 3 finale aired this week. And, of course, we had Chloe Bennett on last week to talk about it and tease it. Well, it aired, so now we're going to review it. So stay tuned. Our review of the Season 3 finale of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. come next here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Luke Mitchell from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. If there's one thing that Nick and I have agreed on throughout this season, it's that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has gone above and beyond what they've done in the past. And Nick, I gotta tell you, this season finale definitely did not disappoint. No, it didn't. And, you know, you look at all these season finales they've had so far, these past few seasons, this was by far, in a way, the best one, and dare I say, the most emotional of all of them. Yeah, I mean, certainly there were a lot of emotions with who died and everything even leading up to that, leading up to who died, because I always kept you guessing. Of course, you know, you saw the cross in the teaser a couple of times before, and you see the jacket, but the problem is, is the cross keeps changing hands, and then the jacket keeps changing hands, but they always kept you guessing as to who actually was going to die in this finale. Exactly, and, you know, first of all, when I saw that Yo-Yo got shot, and then she's, like, bleeding, I'm like, okay... There's, it's not going to be her, and it's not going to be the other person. I can't think of his name, but he can melt stuff. I'm like, it's not even yeah. one of them because that would be very cheap, and it's something you've been building on a falling agent. It's had to be somebody from like the main crew or somebody who's been around for at least a couple of seasons. And we'll get to who it is in a second, but I'm like, 
okay, who can it be? You know, it's, it, and at first I thought it was going to be May, but you had an idea as well. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, we, think we kind of agreed on May, but then I thought it was going to be Fitz, because the reason I thought Fitz was, you know, there's the typical television trope where, you know, when two people are, you know, one person's in love with the other person, and the other person's not in love with them, and then they finally get together kind of thing. Usually it's at the they finally get together part that somebody dies. One of them dies, and it ruins the whole thing, and it's this big emotional thing. What I did think that they might do with Yo-Yo... I thought they might kill her off to make everybody think, oh, okay, it's her, and then kill somebody else off after the fact to make people think, oh, everybody's safe now that she's dead. No, because she didn't die in the ship. You forget about that. So I actually thought they might do that as kind of like a swerve to get people to let their guard down. But, I mean, just so much happened even just in between that. Right, and, and I get you speak of the stuff that happened in between. This, what I love is you know, we had Chloe Bennett on the show last week, and she just talked about how emotional this whole finale is going to be. And oh my god, I just you just want to like hug Daisy. You want to be like everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to work out because she's like feeling really guilty, and she's like I need to sacrifice myself and everything else. And you know, and it's just like oh my god, dude, that scene where she drops on her knees in front of Hive and says, "Take me back." I'm like, what? Well, remember, when I was texting you this, and I, you know, during this finale, I was like, well, remember, she, she said on, the sh- on, a, on our, during our interview that this, you know, getting infected by high was like a drug because, you know, you're getting that big dopamine rush. She was going through withdrawals. Yeah, exactly. She was going through in the inhuman form of withdrawals, and that was just, you know, just an amazing, amazing acting performance by Chloe Bennett. Of course, Brett Dalton. My oh, God. Oh, man. I'll you tell want to talk about a guy who just amped up his performance this season? It's definitely Brett Dalton. Absolutely. And I mean, I know that we'd said in seasons past, oh, Ward just won't die. We're sick of Ward. He wasn't Ward. No. At all this entire season. Not only was he not Ward, think about the evolution of Brett Dalton here. He went from star agent on S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. to double agent for HYDRA to HIVE. So he literally evolved from good guy to most evil guy in the universe over the course of three well, seasons. Well, not just that. And, and it just was the way he changed the character each time. you got to give him a lot of credit for that. Well, he went from agent to double agent to a monster. It was it was literally. Yeah. You want to talk about somebody devolving or evolving into a complete monster. You, Brett Dalton and Agent Ward are the living embodiment of that in this show. And when you, we get to see what Hive really does look like, and I'm glad at how he looked. I yeah. love the look because, you know, you see what he looked like in comics. He was, like, brown and everything else. I like that they went with, like, the looked like the white kind of, you know, squid face like the a little sky bit. blue type yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I like that, you know, and it was a much more, I think, cleaner look and everything else. And, but I mean, he was just really great. And then that scene that, I mean, we can talk about who, who died pretty much. Yeah, spoil- we've using- had some spoilers, by the way. So yeah. this is, this is the biggest one of them all. So this, so yeah, go when ahead. he's on the, the, the ship with Lincoln and they're just floating there and they know they're going to die because the warhead's about to explode. And Brett, and, you know, Ward is just standing there like, I just wanted to be make the world a better place. I just wanted everybody to be united and be one. And Lincoln looks at him and goes, I know. And dude. I know. That you, I cried. I I'm was like, like, 
How did he humanize this evil creature in that final moment? It was so insane. And it wasn't just that he said it. It was the look on his face. It was the way he said it. Where it was like, wow, you hated Hive all season long for what you did to Daisy and what you did to everybody across the entire team. You know, even Coulson losing his his girlfriend at, at that one point. Right. He was responsible for that, too. And even before he was Hive, but it's like, wow, this is unbelievable how he delivered that line and make you care, made you care in that final moment. Right, and and what made was so what was so great about that too is remember he's talking, he has that line where he's like, "Hey, I've never been dead. I've never, you know, of all the things yeah. that have it's you know tried to me kill me, time, yeah. yeah, I've escaped death all this time, and now he was kind of welcoming it, and yeah. I think it was because he had an actual inhuman in Lincoln to and you know and kind of embrace, but also to die with. He didn't mm-hmm. die alone. Mm-hmm. He was with somebody of his own kind, you know. So I think that that humanized, if you will, for as much as you can, though know, they're both inhumans, it humanized that scene. And when Lincoln died, Daisy just what? Just if you thought she was a wreck from being you know rejected from Hive and going through the withdrawal process. Losing this person who, as you mentioned off air, was not only somebody who she loved and had a, you know, was her boyfriend, somebody who was her mentor, like a legit mentor, you right. know? And somebody pretty much the only, she felt like was the only person that truly understood who she was and what she was going through as an inhuman because even even some of the secret warriors team yeah they're inhumans but they she's not she hasn't been around them long enough she doesn't have that personal connection to them like she did with Lincoln you lose that person who is almost everything to you in your life how on earth do you expect her to react right and if now here's what I want to say for the fans who are saying oh how could they kill off Lincoln nobody cared about Lincoln or Lincoln was somebody that they didn't like remember Lincoln, I loved Lincoln throughout the season because Lincoln was kind of, in a sense, the bad boy, but he was also somebody who was kind of rejecting. He was somebody who didn't know his role, really. Right. You know, this is a guy who, ever since the whole uh, the human sanctuary fell apart, has kind of been on the run and been unsure of what he's supposed to be doing in his life. Remember, he said, every inhuman has a role. And, you know, Lash was to protect Daisy. Lincoln's, you know, reason for living, he found out, was to sacrifice himself and save himself and the planet for her. And so, in a sense, it brings everything. It brought everything, you know, full circle to, to Lincoln and just right. made you feel for his character. Because remember, in the opening of the two-hour finale, he's like, you know, Colson's saying, you make a great agent. He pretty much offers him the, the job of agent. And he's like, I don't know if I want this. And then you're yeah. like, oh, that's interesting, you know? Yeah, very interesting. And not only that, let's go back to Daisy for a second and touch on something that you said about sacrificing himself for her. Think about how heavy of a burden that is to carry. Oh, not yeah. only did he do that, remember the other guy that could see the visions of people's deaths? Yes. And how they brought all this together. He sacrificed himself for her as well. That was his purpose. So look at the list that is now piling up of inhumans that have had to sacrifice themselves for Daisy, there's at least three on that list now. 
So, and that's got a way on her mentally too. So she loses her mentor, her boyfriend, her best friend, somebody that understands her the most. She loses her mom, albeit that she was evil. Dad's now brainwashed in somewhere because he was too dangerous. And two other people have died to save her. At what point do you just, you know, enough is enough kind of thing? Well, honestly, I will throw Hive in there as well because there was that, 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 that past few weeks, almost a month, where she was uh, brainwashed. She was a follower of Hive. And... You know, so in a sense, he was kind of teaching her about sacrifice and her being kind of reaching her full potential and everything yeah. else. So she, in a sense, lost two mentors, even though one was very evil. But still, you know, she just experienced a lot of loss and it's just a lot of guilt. Now, let's speaking of days, let's continue this thing going into what was pretty much the post credit sequences. And there was two of them. We'll get to the other one in a second. But she gives, she sees the, you mentioned him earlier, the guy who could, the inhuman who could see the future. You know, he predicted the shield agent dying, pretty much. He was the person that started this whole thing, this whole fallen agent thing. She sees his daughter and his wife, and she gives him, she gives her that bird that he crafted. Yep. And it appears that she's, we don't know if she's on the run, or I, I think she's, I don't think she's being hunted in terms of she's evil. I think she's just gone AWOL. I think that's what it is, too. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily, like you said, mean she's evil. But it's just like in the military, somebody goes AWOL, you got to go find them. Because, you know, that's, you know, it's not necessarily a breach in this case. But, you know, she is still dangerous. She's still an inhuman. And we don't know if the Accords have something to do with this as well. Now she's an inhuman. She's an enhanced being. They've got to track her down or at least keep tabs on her. So we don't know exactly, and maybe the secret warriors now will truly be secret warriors right. and will have an offset of S.H.I.E.L.D. and have it be that. Right, and and I mean, remember, this advance is six months since Lincoln's death with this post-credits finale, or this post-credits stinger. She, when she uses her powers to launch herself onto a building, yeah, damn, <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty awesome. And I mean, you know that her powers are only going to evolve. But the problem is now she has to kind of learn on her own. And I'm sure that once the season premiere happens for season four, we'll get the backstory of, you know, what happens? Is she on the run? What's really going on? I'm sure we'll get an explanation into all that because, like you said, it's jumping six months into the future. But I got to be honest, a couple of things. First of all, I know what happened in the finale, okay? Yeah. But don't you, based on past history, don't you almost feel like you can't really buy that Brett Dalton, that Ward is dead? <laughs> I mean, like, like, like one speck of him is going to be coming back to Earth. Like, like the thing that takes over the bodies in the first place is just going to float there in outer space and wait for something? <laughs> because, I mean, the, as many times as he's come back and as many things as he's gone through, He's the thing that just won't die, and I just can't, I can't fully buy it yet. Or it turns out, like, the actual, like, real war was, like, frozen somewhere. Right, and it's exactly. And brought back to life. Yeah, there, there's, like, a speck of his DNA and a well, broken piece of the gel wanna, matrix or something. I want to talk about that, because you actually bring him a great point, because in the other stinger, well, it looks like we're going to get, in season four, life mile decoys. Yeah, gonna, this this is going to be interesting. So, can you imagine if Ward is a decoy in season four? I'm going to tell you right now. And, and, you know, the thing, I've said this about Brett Dalton before, like, I have never wanted a villain in a television show to die more than Ward, <laughs> than Ward Hive, whatever, just because you, you can't get rid of him. 
You just can't. So if he comes back again, I'm going to feel that way again, but it's going to be different. It's going to be almost appreciative of, wow, this, this guy, he just, he, he can't go away. <laughs> it's kind of like, I love him for it though. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's just, it, it's, it's one of those things, man, where it's just like, they're going to try to maybe find new ways to bring him in. But again, Remember, it's also known that there's a new head of S.H.I.E.L.D., so we don't know who that yep. is. Could that be a decoy? We don't know. You know, what is this going to mean to the Marvel Universe? And even the cinematic universe, remember, both are tied together. So what could this mean going forward, you know? I mean, there's a lot of stuff, and I, I will say this, that, again, we've been very critical of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the past. I think that they're disconnect in this sense from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There was a little bit of the Accords from Civil War in there, but they didn't go... Like, every time there was a movie... Like a, like uh, Age of Ultron or, or 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 Winter Soldier or something like that, it dramatically changed Agents of Shield. Right. This time they did not do that. They focused on their own story, and by doing that, we're able to tell a fantastic story. And I think for the first time in this show's existence, get it right. Right, and exa- exactly, man, because, uh, I mean, this was a good season finale, and I like the way that they've amped it up this season. I think ever since they brought the Inhumans in, I think that even, you know, we talked about this, I think, on the air a while back, too, about how Marvel is believed to have you know, pretty much gotten rid of the Inhumans. They said they still have plans for it, but really they got the release date gone for it. I think they saw how well they worked on television. Yeah. And I think they're like, okay, this is the Inhumans are going to be a TV thing. We're probably not going to get the royal family, but I don't care if we get Black Bolt or Medusa. This works with who they have. And if Daisy, if you know, if she's going to go by known as Quake next season in season four, and she's going to be the leader of the Secret Warriors, it's going to be very, very interesting. I think with that, we can give our, our ratings, man. Yeah, and I got to be honest. Uh- They've opened up such a realm of possibilities for this show. They're finally, it seems like, being allowed to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And they're moving to 10 o'clock next season, so we might get a little darker, a little grittier version, which, of course, Chloe teased to us in our interview last week. And I'll be honest, this is a rating I never thought I would give to this show based on what we'd seen so far. But the way that they amp things up this season and the twists and the turns, I got to be honest, I'm going to give this nine floating hives out of 10. (laughs) Nice man. Well, Again, the performances by everybody, even people we haven't mentioned on the show, just were just amazing. I liked how they kind of played. Really, they played hot potato with death, pretty yep, much. You know, they did. and uh, I like who you know Lincoln dying makes a lot of sense because again, it's going to have a lot of layers, a lot of effects on Daisy going into this fourth season. Uh, Colson is pretty much kind of like. You know, in a sense, Daisy's kind of been like a daughter to Colson, so her being kind of on the run a wall, pretty much, it looks like it appears that his changed his mindset as well. And it's gonna be interesting to see how, as Chloe said in her interview last week, how this is gonna change the game forever. Oh yeah, I'm gonna give it ten out of ten. Flight jackets out of ten. Wow, I want people to go back to last year in our rating of Agents of Shield. And listen to that, and then compare it to this, and that should tell you how dramatically they've changed things and how much they've stepped things up this year. Right, exactly, man, exactly. That's going to do it for our review of the season finale of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Again, season four, we can't wait for it in the fall. But come up next, we have a bunch of nerd news to get to, so stick around. More Down Nerdy, come up next. 
This is comic book writer Tom King, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time to pull out that giant, cushy executive chair that's in the DC Warner Brothers studios right now, because it's time to go around the interwebs and see what's trending. It's time for what, James? Nerd news! And, of course, I bring that up because, well, remember we teased this last week, or kind of talked about last week, well, we did, about how Ben Affleck was the executive producer of Justice League. We said, you know, they need to get somebody in there to be the Kevin Feige, to be the guy who to look over everything in the DC Warner Bros. universe. Well, apparently, according to Hollywood Reporter, that is going to happen because Batman vs. Superman caused so many fractures within DC and Warner Brothers. Jeff Johns is now going to co-run the newly created DC films in this huge shakeup that they're having. I know you, sir, Mr. Witham, have a bit of a little bit of a concern about this in terms of comics. First of all, congratulations to Jeff Johns on his new position. We love Jeff Johns, and we know that he will do right by the source material, do right by the fans, and do a fantastic job. The only thing I worry about here, and follow me on this, fellow DC fans, is that Jeff Johns is also overseeing Rebirth for DC Comics. And let's not forget, Jeff Johns also oversees the TV universe with Warner Brothers on that end as well. At what point do we worry that Jeff Johns overextends himself and something gets lost in the shuffle. For the TV movie aspect, you know, Kevin does that for Marvel, so I think Jeff can handle it for DC. But the comics angle is very interesting. But again, you look at the people who Jeff could possibly say, you know, he's looking over Rebirth. He could possibly say, hey, Jim Lee, you know, look over this, you know, kind of thing like that and report to me and see how it's going. Yeah, and I know that that Dan Diddy will be involved in that as well. And I know they've got the imprint young animal, Jared Jared Way. looks like he's well on his way to being able to handle that because he's posting updates all the time on social media now. So... I know that it's it, it seems like it's in good hands, but when you're basically relaunching your comics arm, you, you want your guy there, you know? You want, right. You want your guy that's going to be able to usher you into this new universe and say what you want about the new 52, but it, it brought some good stories. I know some people disagree with that. It but brought I, Sinestro, for Christ's sakes. Yeah, exactly. The best ones I've ever read. Exactly. So there were some pretty good stories in the Scott Snyder Batman run was new 52, so you can't get too upset about certain aspects of it. So... I just want Rebirth to go well. I want the TV stuff to keep doing what it's doing and being great. But, you know, of course we want the movies to be great. And apparently, according to this same article from The Hollywood Reporter, Suicide Squad is going to be the first movie that kind of has that Jeff Johns touch to it. And here's the thing. is Jeff Johns even said he wants there to be more hope and optimism in the DC films. So pretty much, I think, when he said that, he kind of backhanded Zack Snyder. And I, I... applaud him for doing that because he's like listen man we're not going this route we see how badly your movie was perceived we're gonna you know and if there's anybody that can try to reel in Zack Snyder for Justice League yes and, and, and have him have to report something remember, before this Snyder wasn't really reporting to anybody you know in terms of his movies his he creative was ideas. right yeah. now he has to report to Jeff Johns who wants more hope and optimism and better storytelling and better movies and conflicts that aren't ended by somebody yelling out the other person's mom's name. I like, just you had know, an epiphany, actually. Huh. I just what? had an epiphany. So there's actually an opportunity here. And I think who we're talking about really is Superman. 
right? Because right? they can't. He hasn't really seemed to really get Superman right, according to a lot of the fans. So by killing Superman in Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, not that I'm saying that they should have. I'm not justifying it anyway. Just follow me on this. I know where you're going with this. They huh? have the opportunity now that when he quote unquote wakes up and comes back, he is a different guy. Right. And it, it's I'm not almost lie. perfect. It's almost perfect, and it falls into it. Now, not saying that that makes Batman vs Superman a good movie. No, it, it doesn't. doesn't. Because this is totally by accident. But what the I'm fact saying. that now that you mentioned rebirth, now that hey, Superman in the cinematic universe could be getting a rebirth when he right. comes back in Justice League and stuff like that. You know, right? And and that's very very interesting. And you mentioned Suicide Squad. I remember they also had that story came out too that Margot Robbie is going to be producing and having her own spin-off Harley Quinn movie, which is kind of a risk because you still haven't seen how she's going to be in Suicide Squad or how she's going to be received in Suicide Squad. I hope and I think she's going to do a great job. But again, hearing that she's picked the writer for it, like I guess she's so in love with the character that she's like picked, mm-hmm. you know, had her hands in, in the whole production process. How do you feel about that? Because you're Mr. Harley Quinn pretty much. Um, I actually like it. I think, like I said, I think she will do a good job. Like you said, I think that we might see a little bit of a costume change in that movie uh, when it happens. I don't know if she'll go full on suit. I know she said they tested it for Suicide Squad. I don't know if she's going to go full on suit or not. Doesn't really, shouldn't really have to. But they're also saying that, you know, Batgirl will probably be a part of this. Maybe they dust off the Birds of Prey. So, I mean, as long as you get the casting right, let's let's assume that Jenna Malone is Batgirl. Right. Let's just assume that. So it looks like they're going to go the route where it's not Oracle in Birds of Prey. They're going to go the Batgirl route. That's fine. So, all right, you've already got Margot Ruby and Jenna Malone if she's Batgirl. So then you get uh, Black Canary and Huntress and you're good. You know, I could see that because, you know, it would stand to reason that the Birds of Prey would be in opposition for Harley Quinn if they wanted to go that and, route. And also, you could spin off Birds of Prey because, remember, we're, you know, everybody's tr- nowadays, and this is a good thing, is that they're, they're trying to f- reach that female audience. So right. you introduce Harley Quinn, you can spin that off for the Birds of Prey movie and get that, that female audience, you know, and then yeah. reach out to, to your fans and, and build your fan base even more, you know. So it would be a great move, I think. And quite frankly, the Batgirl comic did pretty well um, for DC. You know, of course, they're going to change it now, but that did pretty well for DC. And, the, you know, the female readers are really, like you said, starting to ramp up. So now it's a good time. It seems like there's a lot of movies that are going this direction, too, with all-female cast. But I think this is a different spin on that. Right, exactly. And speaking of movies, James, you know, in cinematic universes, Marvel has theirs, DC has theirs, and... Well, Nintendo's kind of wanting to have their own now. And according to a report, Nintendo's hoping to self-finance their own animated movies and kind of have their own cinematic universe as well. And, I mean, how do you feel about that? Can I be a dick for just a second? It's your, it's, it's your show. You can be a dick whenever you want. Uh, what money? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Right? Uh, can can we... Not- yeah. That's, can I just say, it's not really being a dick, it's actually being an observation, because, remember, they had that 61% drop in profits a while back, the last quarter. Yeah. So, I mean, they're still going to be, they still have money. There's not, I don't think right, it's still Nintendo, soon. but... But I think that, you know, they had an interview with somebody from Nintendo about the whole cinematic universe, and they were pretty much saying, they were asked about doing the live action, they pretty much said, you know, we did the live action, but we're going to be going more towards animated. I think that's probably because animated they can do more controlled stuff and they can also be possibly yeah. cheaper than doing the live action stuff so it was it was ashi news that actually talked you know via kotaku to tatsumi kishishima 
of Nintendo, who's the president. And that's exactly what you were talking about, how they might go that style. And maybe there are going to be animated movies, not necessarily live action. So then that begs the question, do you want to see any live action adaptation of a Nintendo property at all? Or should this be an animated cinematic universe? Well, remember, there was supposed to be that Zelda Netflix series, which apparently isn't going to happen. You know, you look at Nintendo... And you look at the things they've done both cinematically on the big screen and on the small screen. Cinematically, of course, you had Mario Brothers, which was a complete other piece of shit. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then you also have the Super Mario Brothers, you know, action fun show, or the hell it was called, the animated Super Mario show back in yeah. the day. That was, that was bad, too. So Nintendo hasn't really had a good track record at all on both formats, so... Which is weird, because there's so many opportunities there with Metroid and with Zelda and with Legend of Zelda. I'm not even sure I'd throw Mario in. Oh, hell, you know, that could be an Animal Crossing or, you know, movie or or, or, or series or Star, Star Fox! Yeah, Star Fox, Kirby, there's a lot of, you know, opportunities there to do stuff, so... It just seems like you, they you, they almost have to get something right cinematically, or at least as a television show at some point. Well, remember there was a television show. Remember they had the Donkey Kong animated show, like I think it was ten years ago or whatever, and uh, that wasn't really the bestest of shows. It was an okay show, yeah. but I could do without the musicals and everything else in that. And there's just so many damn banana puns in there. I think you'd be even you would have to cringe at that. Sometimes I do. But, uh, you know, as I think that when you look at, at this, I mean, if they want to go forward with it, you can't not tell them no. You know? Right, you, exactly. You, 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 or you can't tell them no, I should say. You know, if they're the company, they want to go forward with this. If they feel comfortable doing it, fine. But again, if they do this and the fans don't like it, then the fans don't like it. You know, whatever. But they're a video game company that hasn't been able to get their video games right. Right. You know, and they're launching a new console, too. So now you want to throw more into the fire by doing a cinematic universe? <sighs> Again, it's, it's Nintendo's call, but... I get money's money, and, and maybe they think that it'll make it. But again, if this is if this is something else that blows up in your face, how many times can you lose money before you but, lose? Uh, but here's the thing, though, too, is, you know, we mentioned the, the 61% drop in, in revenue that Nintendo had recently. You look at this... If they do the cinematic universe, knowing how much money, you know, you, you know, I have my film degree and I, you know, I've worked on sets. I know how much stuff costs. Even working with equipment, I've worked with equipment that's like thousands and thousands of dollars before. You do that, you get all the equipment, you get all your actors, everything else, and it fails. That I'm, I'm not lying when I say this. If a failed cinematic universe happens, it could bankrupt Nintendo. Yeah. It could. Exactly. If, if the NX doesn't take off like they hope it does, it could seriously bankrupt Nintendo. The the NX not not working out could keep them from doing the cinematic universe and vice versa. If the cinematic universe doesn't work out, it could keep them from being able to do what they really want to do with NX. So I don't know if the cinematic universe is going to be happening anytime soon or how much the wheels are really turning on this. But you got to look at your bottom line, and I know that there's gambles in business, and sometimes you have to take them, and maybe right. they feel like this one's worth it. I don't know. Well, remember, Nintendo started off as a trading card company. So, I mean, going from a, being a trading card company to this huge video game thing, yeah. 
it, yeah, there have been some risks they've taken along the way, and a lot of them have panned out for the good thing. And but again, you look at what they've done with TV and movies; they haven't really panned out so far. And speaking of things that haven't really panned out lately so far, has been James Bond. Of course, there's been the, all those reports of Daniel Craig and how he was pissed, you know, with, with, with doing Spectre because he got hurt and he hated doing all these things and all this press and everything else for it. And so, pretty much. We're not going to dive back into that, but we're pretty much these reports are saying now is, according to multiple sources and reports, he is no longer going to be James Bond, and now that role is now open for the taking. Yeah, and like I said, this is multiple reports, so there's no one specific source that we can quote here, but I just... I know it's, it's somebody... There's one report that's saying it's not true, he hasn't made up his mind yet. You know what, Daniel Craig? You've been complaining about yeah. this for over a year now. Just go away. Yeah. You know, you've done a good job. Thank you for your service. Go away. You want to. At this point, I think we want you to. Enough is enough. Let's start the healing process and move on. Yeah, I mean, Casino Royale was an amazing, amazing movie. I think it was the best, still the best movie that Craig's ever done. I agree. In terms of the Bond. Skyfall was second. And, you know, the other ones really are just fall way by the wayside. But, I mean... So outside of Daniel Craig, and the thing is, Daniel Craig's made his money. He made fifty-five million dollars right. doing and these a, movies. And he, was a, to the report, he was the highest-paid Bond. Yeah, and according to one of the reports, he's going to walk away from ninety-nine million if he walks away from this. Right, exactly. you got to really want to walk away. Right, exactly. But instead of furthering more on Daniel Craig and, and doing other things, you know, and mentioning Daniel Craig, what we what we did here is we decided to let's have a list, like a short list of. Three people, or, or maybe a couple less, who we would love to see Bond and play Bond, pick up that mantle. And, and James, you want me to go first? Or you go yeah, first? you go ahead and go first, because we might actually agree on a couple. All right, well, the first one I think is somebody that is someone, and you know where I'm going with this, is someone that everybody's been clamoring for. And even back then, when the whole Spectre thing came out about Daniel Craig and him not being happy, I said, James Bond to me, what makes James Bond? It's the phrase, Bond, James Bond. It's the 007 mark. It's secrecy. It's a title. James Bond should not be a person. Right. He should be an identity. Right. He should be a title. So Idris Elba, if you've seen Luther and you've seen the action stuff he's done. And mind you, our lists are composed of people where we don't care if they're busy or not. This is just our list. Yeah. I think he'd be a perfect perfect role for this and a perfect choice to play bond i agree i mean i can't i can't fault any argument in that and and you know i mean i know that there's a lot of reasons that people think he shouldn't but i don't see any reason why not i mean he's got the chops for it. he's got all those things that you mentioned and i think he would embody the character and i i agree that james bond should be more a code name than an actual person's name just like 007 is his code but james bond itself it's like you said, it's an identity. It's an actual person. I totally agree with that. Exactly. So my second person is now. If you there's a there's a series this person was in that you have to go watch. I think it's like a four to six part series. It was out years ago on the BBC, I believe. It was called The Take. And if you watch The Take, starring this person, it was just amazing. It was you. This person can play Bond, and I mean, just from his other roles he's done so far. He can play Bond, and that's Tom Hardy. I yep. think Tom Hardy would be a, a great role. He's, he can do the physical stunts. He can do all these action sequences. You know, he can do a lot of things, and I think him being Bond, and, you know, he has that brashness. He has that 
attitude where he can walk in. And he can be suave too. He's not walking bang, bang, yep. bang. You know, but again, remember, if I, as I said, Bond can be an identity. So this could be different from the Daniel Craig and the Pierce Brosnan Bonds. This could be the non-suave Bond. This could be, hey, you know, the guy who walks in, shoots first, asks questions later, you Maybe know? Maybe a little bit more grit to him, which we haven't really seen from a James right. Bond character in the past. That's why I actually put Tom Hardy at the top of my list. Right, exactly. Now my third person, this is where I went different with this. But after seeing this movie he was in recently last year, I'm like, this guy, no doubt. If they want to go a little bit with an older Bond, possibly. But you want to still keep that, that kind of little bit of comedic, but very suave feel to him. Colin Firth. Okay. You seen, if you've seen The Kingsman. That would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. Watch Kingsman tell me he can't play Bond. I will prove you wrong. That would be very interesting to see if they went that direction and decided to go a little bit older. I actually don't think going a little bit older would be a bad idea. Right. Because they don't tend to do that. Right. Not recently, anyway. Right. So Colin Firth is my guy. Actually, I think of all of them, Idris Elba and Colin Firth my top two, really. Well, I mean, who was the oldest Bond that they ever had? Roger Moore? Was he the <sighs> oldest guy to ever play I think Bond? It, I think it was Roger Moore, yeah. So, I mean, why not try to do that again? It's not necessarily the worst idea in the world. Exactly. So who was on your list, or did I cover both of them? Well, Tom Hardy was number one on okay. the list, so we've covered that. The The other one, I want to discuss the hot rumor, and he's a guy that I would certainly consider if we want to make our list a little bit different. The hot rumor, of course, being, I think it was Entertainment Weekly, said that Tom Hiddleston was going to be the front runner for <sighs> Big Bond, where, you know, it seems like, ah, can he really pull that off? But, I mean, if you've seen The Night Manager, he's very different in that. It's very, you could almost see how he could pull off the suaveness if he had to, but again, maybe this is a little bit of a different bond. Maybe the, he brings more mystery to it than suaveness. So I know it might be a stretch, but he certainly has the chops to pull it off, and he could certainly get the action parts correct. See, I don't think Tom Hilston can be Bond. I look at Tom Hilston, I look at him more as a Q. Tom Hilston, I think you look at what he did with I Saw the Light and you know Crimson Peak and stuff like that. They weren't really received that well. I think Tom Hilston, as much as, he, as good as he is in Night Manager, he's just somebody who I think doesn't really steal the movie screen. You know what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. As, as, a, lead, as, as, have, a, lead, as a lead man. Maybe he doesn't have that presence yeah. enough to be Bond. I think he certainly has a lot of chops that could where it's like, I could see that. Oh, but does he have, but does he have that presence that right. I think that James Bond might need? So I just wanted to discuss the hot rumor around the room. So I figured why not throw him on the list? So my other name, and again, I don't care how busy he is. I'm going to throw it out there because do you want to talk about somebody that commands presence. Can I, can I, can that's, I say who it is? That's handsome. Can I that say who could it is? easily pull off anything you throw in front of him. Go ahead. Can I say who it is? Yeah. It's either going to be Stephen Amell or Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Nope. No. Chris Hemsworth. No. How about that? No, Chris Hemsworth can't. Why because, not? Dude, have you seen the movies where he's been the leading man? They're he, terrible, and he can't do it. Again, the same thing with Hilson. He doesn't command the screen well. I'm just saying, man. Think outside about of, it. Honestly, outside, even, like, even, I, I, honestly I'll probably, this will probably piss some people off. In Thor, Hilston grabbed the screen more than Hemsworth did. Well, that is true. But, again, it's a name. He's a commanding presence. He stands uh. out. He's a good-looking dude. He'd probably be the best action 
star oh. for Bond that they've ever had. No, I, I just think, again, you got to look at the whole body of work, what he's done after, outside the Marvel movies. They haven't done well. Uh, even the Huntsman, stuff like that. Is she? No. Well, sometimes the movies haven't done well, and that's not his fault. But again, it's his ability to, but again, it's also, you know, to use a sports analogy, you can have, what makes a great quarterback is when he can make, you know, chicken salad out of chicken shit. You know, a good actor, I think, for a most part, can make at least decent and okay on a role that in a movie that's not that great. He hasn't been able to really do that from what from all the movies I've seen that he from of him outside the Marvel universe. I just think it's an interesting discussion. We'll see what happens. I think it's an interesting discussion. I wanted to try and bring up names that I think would be a very interesting discussion for this role because there's obvious ones like you said, and you took the first, you really took the first two in Tom Hardy and Idris Elba, but then you expand the list from that and who's left, right? Other than somebody we have you have no idea about in the first place, right? But that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. Come next, we have the creative team behind Limbo from Image Comics. We're going to come out and talk about Volume 1 of the series coming out in June. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy. Come up next. This is Stephen Cummings, comic book artist, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, this week, not only were we entering the comics world, we decided to fire up the old VHS recorder once again because it's a really cool series. If you guys don't know about it, it's called Limbo from Image Comics. We're so excited to have the writer and artist for that book, Dan Waters and Casper Wingard. Gentlemen, how you doing today? Hi, guys. Yeah, doing it again. Very good. And as a matter of fact, we see a lot of 80s-style technology in this story. So what is it about that era that just works so well within this book? I guess that was the the limitation we set ourselves at the beginning, wasn't it? That, that's kind of the the era that we wanted to set the book in. So um, we didn't really want to go like beyond the eighties, like te- te- technology wise. So we kind of figured it would be quite cool to just keep it within that spectrum. And yeah, aesthetically, it, it it sort of started out as as more of an aesthetic thing, and then it kept meshing with the themes that we were going for anyway. Uh, and it and it sort of became a lot about tape and you know how tape works and uh, different sort of uses and trying to put, bring back some of that sort of analog weirdness. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you kind of you kind of lose the magic of analog technology on things these days with you know like apps like Instagram and and digital mm-hmm. video and there was something really unique about making your own mixtapes and your own you know recording your own VHSs and making your own video library of things that you were you know like taping from tv and stuff and making your own kind of uh medleys of films and you know there was a there was a personalized personalization that you can't really replicate these days by just making a spotify playlist so it's like you know there's there's something yeah really organic about the whole thing i think and that's kind of what we wanted to play on it's because now now you can sort of replicate anything, um, be it um, music or art or, or anything like that. You can replicate it with sort of perfection, uh, with ease. And so the sort of art or music, or whatever, sort of loses some of its power to begin with. There's no there's no sort of original. Uh, whereas when when you were back, you know, recording things off the radio or off, off, off whatever onto onto cassette, there was always a loss in quality. And the more you used the cassette, there was like mm-hmm. oh, yeah. degradation, um, which, you know, meant, meant things were a little bit more, well, they felt a little bit more special, a little bit more important. Um, yeah. And you get like 
glitches in the tape and stuff and you get hiccups of things that you may have recorded underneath yeah and, and like just like in with records with vinyl the clicks and pops and stuff like that that you would get on there as well yeah exactly and and we tried to visually put that into limbo in the way that as the book progresses you start to get jumps in the in the in the panels and they start to tear and like the last chapter uh specifically just starts to kind of fall to pieces before the end of the book and it starts to really tear until you get to the end of the cassette like you used to when you used to watch vhs like as it got towards the end of the vhs it started to like kind of break down a little bit and yeah (laughs) you know where everyone was just like stopping it and rewinding it it was like damaging the damaging the tape so i kind of wanted to replicate that visually as well in the book and have it be part of the story at the same time Oh, exactly. And, you know, in, in book two, there's just an amazing panel sequence that you guys have in there that just showcases all different shows and channels that Clay is invading and going into. So for both of you, what was it like putting that together and how did you decide on kind of like the placement of the channels and where he would go from and to which one? You, you, you planned out the first page, right? You, you, you'd said in the first page what you wanted and then I think the second page you were just like yeah <laughs> just, yeah <laughs> at that point I was, sort of, I was sort of going Casper so I've got this idea for two pages it's 24 panels um, and so you know I, I sort of wrote out 12 of them and I thought well, he's just going to kill me anyway this isn't he's never going to agree to do this what so you were like I think we think but he ran right. with it really yeah. Oh, you, well, you had this whole thing where it's like, so at like every channel he goes in, can he be wearing a costume that is like relevant to that show? And I was like, yeah, how about no? Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like no, you don't want to kill me over here. I think this is enough. Like, let's just keep it. Let's keep and by it. the way, let's have 10 variant covers as well. Let's do that. <laughs> by Wednesday, please. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's. it's it's funny that you guys talk about the Televerse because throughout the story we kind of see a lot of that. So if you could kind of take any character or cast from a show and suck them into your story, who would it be and why? Yeah. Well, I'd say Max Headroom, but he's already in there. Oh, yeah. yeah he's, already, he's already in it, so yep. I'm like, ugh. Yep. No, he's not. Sorry, that's a... Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say there's these reasonable no, facsimile of a, of a familiar character there, and uh, it was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> My mind's gone blank. I, I don't think I've watched any TV at this point. <laughs> starting to feel like, did, have I even seen a TV? Like, well, there's there's the obvious choice. It's like a detective thing, like a Magnum PR. You could just completely go off the rails. Oh, like, Ironside. Or something. <laughs> Ironside. There you go. Yeah, I like that. I'm just thinking of the first the first detective that came to I mind. I like that. <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of characters, a character I felt that really helps bring the world of Limbo to life and together is Sandy because she not only accepts the world she and Clay live in, but she also embraces its personality with her practicing voodoo. And so, Dan, as a writer, how important is it to give a main character like Clay a companion who can hold her own but at the same time enlighten him in things when it comes to how he views his surroundings? Well, yeah, I mean, Sandy, yeah, she sort of became that. I mean, when we first started the book she didn't quite have as big or as prominent a role she sort of uh, we, we always sort of say like she sort of took on she totally took on a life of her own she sort of took over and became became our favorite character like like for certain she understood the way the world works so she was mm. kind of there to kind of explain these things to clay and the reader at the same time because 
she wasn't alien to the things that were going on in the same way. Like, Clay doesn't really react to anything that's going on because mm-hmm. he's a clean slate when he goes in there. So he's experiencing all this for the first time because he's an amni- You know, like, he's just expecting this is just normality. But then you've got someone like Sandy who's, you know, he knows stuff's off, but she is explaining to him the whole time. So she's kind of like the guide through the book in a way. Like, she's kind of guiding the reader and trying to make as m- kind of as much sense as we can out of it. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely get that. As a matter of fact, uh, not only is she guiding through that, I think her pages were actually more colorful. And actually, Casper, one of the things I noticed about the art in general is that it always had a feel of like you were watching an old watching a television in a dark room. Do you feel like that kind of set the tone for the story other than Sandy's pages anyway? Yeah, that was the kind of, it was like that blue light. You know, the dark, you know, when you used to watch TV in the room when it was really dark and it was just kind of like illuminating the room. I wanted that feel throughout the book, especially when it was clay. Uh, not so much when it's Sandy. Sandy's pages were always supposed to be like really bright and and and, and, and almost alive because that's that was kind of her thing. You know, like she was, she hers was like, she was working with living magic. She was, everything was about music and, mm-hmm. and uh, expressing herself, whereas clay was always just an empty shell so it it kind of had to you know like uh he emulated the rooms that he was in in a way like it kind of he whenever he was in a room with uh like his his office space is just it's a couple of masks on the wall and a plant you know and and the lights were always off whereas sandy's room is just like cluttered with everything that she loves it's all on the walls it's all on the floors like it mm-hmm. just surrounds her everywhere because like that's who she is as a person she's just that vibrant so it was just like reflecting of their characters in each room and then you know the thumbs this maybe not so is he do you reckon he's paranoid dan i can't remember, so he's too paranoid but, you know like he's got these tvs and he's got this huge dramatic yeah he's uh, an observer the, yeah he's that's... an observer in a way and he's got this like dramatic you know it's all about uh Watching, it's about watching. It's about aesthetics. He's 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 obsessed with aesthetics, and he's an aesthetic character. But then he's also about the drama, isn't he? He's about the the uh, yeah. The, so it's the visual. So it's how it appears, as opposed to how it really is. So yeah. So he's got this big grandiose like club, and, exactly. Yeah. Which is kind of a side theme of the entire book, really. Yeah, definitely watching, and um, I mean, I mean, you know, as Gaspar said, like Clay's got all the. Uh, masks on his on his wall because it, it was sort of the idea of of, um, of of who we sort of think we are as, a peer to, as opposed to who we appear to be. Yeah, I guess um, there's a tiny bit of Big Brother in there, isn't there? I guess again with the era that it was set in, you know, it's all about kind of, uh, is he, well, he's a peeping toy. He's a peeping toy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, by the way. I mean, like, yeah, like, I, I don't want to know what he does with those tapes. Like, my God. Like, oh. be all sorts of who clay or, or oh the thumb? The thumb. He's got all the he's got tapes of everyone. There you go. Well, there was a, we had like all these other ideas. There's like little tiny things that we sprinkled throughout the books that we never really uh, throughout the issues that weren't really hit hit upon with the, the cassette tapes. Like I think mm-hmm. in the very first issue, I think like four pages in, one of the punks has a cassette around his neck with the name of his you know like his partner or his ex girlfriend or something around his neck. So like mm-hmm. he's like got a tape on her. Which you know, it's like it's nothing. It's just something in the background. But I like the idea that like these tapes are kind of like distributed or has some sort of power in the same way that like Clay's tape did, and the Telly Sharma could go after him. And then when the Thumb is having the the fight in the Thunderdome in the uh, in the, <laughs> album, 
there's the tapes and the cassettes. There's c- tapes and cassettes tied around the poles. Right. You know, like, and as in, like, Clay's tape would have been there as well if he'd uh, failed. But, you know, like, it was kind of like a their identity in a way. That, yeah, like, um, like, almost like little obituaries. Like, yeah, like the thumb had yep. everything on them. And when, when they were dead, he'd just, like, hang them from these posts and, and like, as their last kind of, like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it's, it's like a, like, a, like a video version, of like a tombstone, pretty much. That, yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah except writing in black mark on like the VHS label. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like we didn't really hit on that. It was just kind of more of a you know like a, a funny world building oh, thing. Oh, definitely. Just, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We're talking with Dan Wars and Casper Wingard, the creative team behind Image Comics is Limbo Volume One is going to be in stores and available online digitally June first. And Casper, one of the main th- great things you do with your art is that, you know, in your colors especially, is that you blend them together to where one falls perfectly layered into another, and it's kind of like a neon version of like a Roy G. Biv. So what are some things that neon colors do better in terms of aesthetics compared to regular colors, and what are some of the challenges in, in possibly just using neon overall? It doesn't work so well in the daytime, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we had like in uh, issue three, there was a lot like towards the beginning of the book was set during the day. That was probably the trickiest bit to kind of pull off because it's really, you know, like throughout the whole book, it's usually set at nighttime. So when you get to that one scene where it's like in the diner and the couple of scenes afterwards, it was, you can really tell it's like really vibrant. So it was like, I don't know if I I did it a bit too much or I should have just played it down a little bit because it works quite well when there's quite a lot of dark contrast with the colors as well kind of play they play off on each other with the mm-hmm. with the thick black lines but when it's just like you know a whole page of color it just like attacks your senses a little bit but um uh, choosing the colors is always they there you know like I, I just like to choose colors that work really well together i don't really know how to explain it it's quite hard like <laughs> obviously i'd have a palette that i work with that i you know like i had colors that i made on a swatch so I'd use like similar colors and then I put them together on a, on a, on a page. So I'd know which ones from the top of my head would work well together. And whenever I was coloring a page, I'd usually do two at the same time. So I, I'd have two pages open at the same time. So I could kind of keep them as a double page spread, like quite similar when you were, when you were reading it. So like it, what, there wasn't so much of a jolt in color when you move your eye to the next page. So I wanted to keep it quite uh, consistent. We're talking to Dan Waters and Casper Wingard from Image Comics' Limbo. Of course, come out June 1st from Image Comics at imagecomics.com and, of course, at your local shops. Dan, at one point in the story, there was kind of a commentary about detective stories in general in the book, and it brings it actually brought up a really interesting point. So given that particular part of the book, is there something driving Clay or are his actions kind of predetermined in a way? Well, uh, yeah, I suppose that's the uh, big question of the book, really, isn't it? Um, but the, the the sort of idea with the detective and and the way Clay behaves, which I kind of wanted to like uh, to to get from the get go of the book, is is the idea that he's acting like this detective. He wants to be this sort of Philip Marlowe character. Uh, he has no real credentials to do so, which becomes quite clear throughout the book, I think, because he just gets himself in all sorts of trouble. Not that not that Philip Marlowe doesn't get himself in all sorts of trouble, but he doesn't tend to get, you know, eaten by snakes or yeah. things like that, which Clay manages. Um, <laughs> but the idea was, was, was that this world will not play by the detective 
uh, story rules, but Clay feeling like he's a person without an identity sort of latches onto this uh, this detective identity, uh, which involves just uh, sort of going through these same motions over and over again, sort of whether they achieve anything or not. Um, so I guess to answer your question, he kind of traps himself into a, into maybe into a, into a predetermined sort of um, loop by choosing to, to latch onto this identity and not letting go. There's a great line Sandy uses when discussing sacrifices where she talks about making the perfect mixtape. So I have to ask you guys, if you were given a mixtape as a sacrifice, what's one 80 song that would have to be on it? Uh, yeah, for me, it's definitely You Suffer by Napalm Death. If, if nice. You, yeah. Uh, Empire State Human by the Human League, possibly. Wow. Wow. That's like a deep track right there. I like that. We went to very different places. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of different places, where can people go find you on social media? Oh, nice segue. Uh, Dan PG Waters. And uh, I'm at Casper Nova. Yeah, because you don't want anybody trying to spell Wingard on Twitter. <laughs> no. That would, that would not be good. <laughs> but what is good is Limbo Volume 1, which is going to be coming out June 1st at your local comic shops. And, of course, digitally go to imagecomics.com to find out more information about Limbo. It's Dan Waters and Casper Wingard. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us this week to talk about Limbo. Yeah, Thanks for having thank us. You. Well, James, you want to talk about a series that is very interesting. And not only that, but very colorful as well. Limbo, of course, from Image Comics and Dan Waters and Casper Wingard, you have to pick up Volume 1 when it comes out in stores and available digitally as well. I mean, there's so much going on in this book, and it seems like there's always something going on in each issue. And then you get towards the end, which we won't spoil it for you. Man, there's just, the ending just turns you right on your head. Yeah. Wow, what is going on? Exactly. And, And even then, man, you know, we talked about with all the panels and everything else. It really goes many twists and turns. You know, you know what it is? It's kind of like riding a wooden roller coaster that jerks you around, but in a good way, though. It's not the kind of jerking around that hurts. It's the one that's like, oh, here's a turn right here. And here's another turn. And it's like, wow, I am hooked. <laughs> you know? It's just so funky and cool. And I mean, I know that you you see that with Image Comics a lot and you know, that's why Image Comics does what they do, and that's why they're so successful. They find these funky, cool, weird, weird stories where, you know, maybe not everything is as it seems, and is it? And then you find out in the end where they were going, and then it's like, whoa, that was, like, you described it pretty well. It's it's almost like a roller coaster. It's like Andrew Dice Clay, I'm over here now! I'm, I was here, but now I'm over here now! <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna do it for this week's edition of the Don Nery Podcast. Again, thanks to Image Comics, Dan Waters, and Cass Wingard for coming on to talk about Limbo and again thanks to you sir my fine colleague Mr. James Witham for again another riveting and fun show as we always do, which you can always find them online, by the way. The whole list is at downandnerdypodcast.com. Don't forget our special edition episode with Casper Crump talking about the Legends of Tomorrow's season finale, which was amazing. We'll be talking about that coming up on a future show. So we got that at downandnerdypodcast.com. All the stuff from our Amazon store is so much more. And also, hey... People, if you're in the Virginia Beach area, if you're going to be at Tidewater Comic Con, guess what? If you're listening to this, whether it's Friday or Saturday morning, guess what? 
Taiwan Comic Con is this weekend at the Virginia Beach Convention Center. We're going to be there at table 603, of course. We're going to be doing a live show. We're going to be broadcasting on both Twitter and Facebook. We're also going to be doing some recording as well. But also, at 11.45, you do not want to miss the DC Comics panel, which is going to be moderated and hosted by yours truly. James and I are going to be hosting the DC Comics panel. Again, we want to give a big thank you to Mr. Mike Federale for asking us to be a part of that. It's really going to be a really fun experience. We're talking to a couple of a few of the creative people at DC Comics. It'll be a really, really fun time. And also, don't forget, at Awesome Con, we're going to be in Washington, D.C., June 3rd to the 5th. We're going to have interviews. We're going to be walking the floor, pictures. So, if, hey, follow us on Instagram at DonNerdy757, Facebook.com at Facebook.com slash DonNerdy, and Twitter at DonNerdy757 as well. I'm at Merck with one arm, Mr. Witham. I'm at James Ace Witham. And don't forget, we're going to have archives of all the pictures and stuff like that on our Facebook pages. We'll have the videos up on our downandnerdypodcast.com website and so, so much more. We've got just so much going on. It's insane. And that's going to do it for this week's show. And I leave you with the same words as I do every week, folks. Always pass safe comic book reading. Always back on board your comics. And we'll see you at Tidewater Comic Con.